to you this morning. Uh, if you're a Mandarin speaker, Shenyan Kuala. If you speak Vietnamese, Truk Mung Nam Moi. Um, I'd say it in Cantonese, but there's some question about luck, and uh, maybe I won't say that, but maybe may God's, may the blessings of God rest upon you in the new year. May his wealth and his uh, blessing be yours in abundance. So um, it's a joy to be with you this morning. I was gone the last couple weeks. It was not a vacation. It was a staycation. I had about a week of sleeping and eating like Elijah, and then I had one week of housework. Um, I'd like to tell you I got it all done and I was cheerful the whole time. No, um, but I'm glad to be back in this time. We are beginning a new sermon series on the book of Jeremiah. I mentioned this on New Year's Day. For those of you who are here, it's okay. Um, we're going to go for the next month and look through this book together. And it's going to carry us through into the summer season. And it's hard to explain sometimes how... Um, a pastor gets led to a book. Uh, you are reading your Bible and you're studying and you're trying to hear what God is saying and uh, God kind of nudged me and said, hey, you should read Jeremiah again. And I thought, yeah, that's a good idea. I'll do that. And uh, typically I read Jeremiah and there's a sense of, you know, his prophetic call and I'm reading for what's going on in his life and I'm enjoying some of these things and I've got notes. And the further I read, this kind of crazy idea came into my head. Should we preach through Jeremiah? And I wrestled with it while I read through. And the more I read, the more I was like, man, that's a kind of nutsy idea. Maybe I'll do it. Maybe I will. And the longer I sat with the idea, the more it felt like, actually, yes, this is where we're supposed to be. Um, and so with a sense of um, the same sense I've had previously with other books, I feel like this is where we're supposed to be as a church. I don't know why we're necessarily supposed to be here as a church. I don't have a program or a plan. Like uh, with First Peter, I had a sense that we need to be thinking about what it means to live in exile. So I knew that I wanted some kind of things to come out of it. I don't have the same kind of plans for this. I just know that this is probably the book we're supposed to be in for this next season of our church life. Now, Jeremiah is a hugely important book. It's one of the major prophets of the Old Testament. Along with Isaiah and Ezekiel, he composes a significant portion of the Old Testament. He has huge impact on the story of Israel with ongoing impact on the New Testament. And he has a message that I believe is timeless and a message that is for us. That being said, Jeremiah is a very different kind of book. And I'm going to highlight some of the difficulties of the book for a moment now. Structurally, it's a book with mixed genre. There are sections that are poetry and sections that are biblical prophecy and sections that are narrative. And so reading through it, you're encountering different kinds of content in the book. Structurally, it's also not a book in chronological order. If you open and read Jeremiah through from chapters 1 to 52, chapters, some of the chapters don't fall from one another in order. They're out of order, uh, and that makes things a little bit difficult. Uh, there are um, events that are out of place. It's difficult to identify some time periods. Some of the prophecies, you don't even know who they're addressed to. Okay, So you can't quite figure these things. There's difficulties of the content. There are scenes in the editing. Uh, all, every book of the Bible's been edited. Somebody's touched it and put it together, and uh, somebody tied off the scroll, right? Uh, there's that, that bit at the end of, of Moses' life in Deuteronomy where it says, now Moses was the most humble man who ever lived, right? If Moses wrote all of Deuteronomy, that's a weird thing for the most humble man who ever lived to write. Somebody else has touched it, and that's okay, right? Um, no, Jesus didn't write a book. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote books, and we have their edited versions of Jesus' life. Don't be bothered by editing. It's perfectly normal. But we can see some of the themes in a book like Jeremiah. 
So thematically, here's the big picture. If you're following along to fill in the blanks, here's the thing. Thematically, Jeremiah is a book that shifts between the personal life of Jeremiah, the national life of Israel, and the timeless message of God in those circumstances. Okay? Big shifts. The personal life of Jeremiah composes a lot of the narrative of the book. All right? The national life of Israel, the story of what's going on geopolitically, and a timeless message of God within this to Jeremiah, to Israel, to us. And so there's a complex series of things going on, and our sermon series will have to shift between these themes accordingly. There's not just one stream we can follow as we work through this. Above all, perhaps, Jeremiah is a difficult book because it is an ancient text. Now, the Bible's always an ancient text. We're always reading something that's old, and we don't quite share um, its worldview. But maybe Jeremiah is extra ancient. There are some extra things that make it difficult. First, he's speaking into a 7th century before Christ context. And there are geopolitical realities and kingdoms and powers that are so far removed from our time, it's hard to imagine them. And so we have to get ourselves used to what's going on in this ancient world that makes sense of these things. And secondly... Reading it may highlight some of our general discomfort with the Old Testament. But let's just acknowledge that there is sometimes real discomfort with the Old Testament when we read it. It's really common to talk today about how, well, you know, the New Testament is all about how God is love, but the Old Testament has all that wrath and fire and brimstone stuff, right? Well, Jeremiah is extra Old Testament. <clears throat> like all that stuff, <clears throat> beg your pardon, all that stuff you think of about caricatures of the Old Testament, it's here. And it's here in rarefied, amplified form. This is Old Testament as Old Testament gets. Uh, some modern preachers even talk about the need to like, hey, we've got to really focus on the New Testament and kind of, uh, one of them is using the, uses the word, we have to unhitch from the Old Testament, right? Because these things are embarrassing and they can maybe keep people from finding easy access to the church because it's all this uncomfortable wrath of God stuff. But we don't get to do that. This whole book is the word of God. This whole book communicates God's will for us. This whole book gets us avenues into a deeper understanding of our King Jesus and the gospel and the good news for our city and world. We need all of it to do this stuff well. And I think many people, aside from these things, do struggle with the Old Testament because it has narratives of violence. There's moral complexity in its characters. And sometimes what it presents about who God is in the midst of all that leaves us a bit uneasy. And I want to acknowledge those difficulties. I don't want to explain them, but I want to acknowledge them this morning. All that to say that a church study of the book of Jeremiah is going to ask a lot, both of me, our preaching team, and of you as hearers. It's a challenging time. I do think we're up to the challenge. But I want to tell you one thing I've learned about the Bible and my te about teaching through the Bible. It's that the difficult passages are always the most fruitful. If you spend sustained time looking at the hard parts of Scripture, the things you don't like, the things you don't understand, the more you spend time investing in those, the more rewards you get spiritually. God's, fruit seems, God's greatest fruit seems always to be tied to some of these most difficult nuggets of Scripture. So, the challenge is presented, and I encourage us to pursue it together these next months. Just briefly, our kind of plan of attack. We're going to have some introductory time. Today is an introductory overview. Um, in the coming weeks, we'll have more of these introductions. I'm going to talk about Israel's story in some depth so we can get into it. Jeremiah's life, what kind of person he was, and how do we read prophecy? What does it mean to read and to receive prophecy? Because I think these are things we're not used to these days. And then, we're not going to go chronologically through the book. We're not going to go chapter by chapter, verse by verse. If we did a verse by verse study of the book of Jeremiah, we'd be here till 2054. 
okay? Long sermon series. I don't think that's what we're supposed to do. What we're going to do is highlight key passages and messages. There'll be things about God's judgment, about the need for repentance, about the prayer life of Jeremiah, about how to live in exile, and many more things. I'm not going to list all of them right now. As an aside, some of you may want to read the book of Jeremiah on your own in this season. I highly recommend it. I commend it. Find a translation that's readable to you that you enjoy and spend some time with it. Like I said, there's about 52 chapters. We're going to be here well more than 52 days. You read a chapter a day, you're golden, okay? And you'll be just fine. Now, I don't propose that you're going to understand everything. That's okay. But I do want to ask you, if you've got questions, if there are things that bother you, write them down or send me an email about it. Happily, I'll receive that. I won't promise to answer your question from the pulpit in this place, but I will gladly give you a response and see if we can come to some clarity together in these things, okay? So if you're reading and you get confused or alarmed, send me a note, okay? That's the best thing we can do. So right now what I want to do is I want to highlight Jeremiah's main message, but even to do this, we need to set up some context for what's going on in this story. So let's take a moment to look at the context of Jeremiah. And here's the thing. Jeremiah was God's prophet during the last gasp of Israel's existence as a nation. Jeremiah is God's chosen prophet during the last gasp of Israel's existence as a nation. Now, hopefully you know Israel's story in the broadest strokes, and while I'll cover this in a week or so, I'm just going to go through it very briefly right now. God calls Abraham out of Ur to the Chaldees. He says, I'm going to make you a nation, right? And then Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has his uh, 12 boys, and they end up in Egypt where they end up slaves, right, over time. They, massive, they grow massively. They become slaves. God calls up Moses. Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt. They end up at Sinai, Mount Sinai, where they get the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Big moment, mountain, fire, lightning, cool stuff. Woo! Okay? So this happens. Then they're leading them to Canaan, the promised land, which is they're going to inhabit as God's special, the, prom the space that had been promised to them. But they rebel, and so God sends them into the wilderness for 40 years until the whole generation dies out. They come back, they take over the promised land, then you get the Davidic kingship and the building of the temple. So there's a solidifying of the nation state around both a, a genealogy, a Davidic line, and around a religious, uh, a religious symbol. The temple is the symbol that unifies the people. But shortly after Solomon's death, the kingdom divides into the northern kingdom, Israel, the southern kingdom, Judah. And now for several hundred years, you get a series of really bad leaders and apostasy and bits of renewal and some hope, but things just go haywire over and over again, okay? In about the 8th century before Christ, this is 7, 700, and you don't worry about the numbers, the backwards numbers are always confusing to me as well. 8th century BC, there's a new empire called the Assyrian Empire from the north. It shows up, wipes out the northern kingdom of Israel completely. It's horrible. I'll tell you more about it later. Some of the stuff they do is horrible. It's a project of um, they invade and they deport, and so it's just gone. From this time on, there's no kingdom of Israel. Judah survives for another 100 years, okay? Goes on until the Babylonian Empire rises up, wipes out the Assyrians, then comes down. And at that time, the Babylonian, leads, the Babylonian Empire comes, destroys the temple once for all, obliterates the kingdom of Judah, and deports all the people. Okay? Now, the key thing, Jeremiah's words all fall during this final period. He's there, eyewitness to the end of Israel. He's in the room when this stuff happens. And he's speaking to the geopolitical powers at this last gasp of Israel's existence. And so the key context is this. Jeremiah is both a prophet within and a witness of these events. He's speaking to the events, but he's also seeing them and feeling them personally. It's, he's, 
He's called the weeping prophet because he watches everything he loves get wiped out. And it's hard. I don't want to pretend that it's easy. He watches, first of all, as he is commissioned by God to give warnings to his people and as God's people completely ignore the voice of God. Wow, what a hard place to be. He watches not only as people ignore it, but as other religious leaders actively subvert the message God's given him. He's hearing from God, he's speaking it, and the other religious leaders are contradicting him with the name of God. God's not saying what Jeremiah's saying, he's saying what I'm saying. It's a hard place to be. He watches then as the people of God are deported, and we must not look away from the fact that the end was especially grim for Israel. If the temple is the beating heart of your identity, if it makes you who you are, separates you from the world, gives you a sense of joy, this is the presence of God on earth, and you're watching it be taken apart brick by brick. The nations appear to have won. No, your God isn't God. I'm going to wipe out his face. I'm going to melt down all these things. We're taking it away. And the last king of Israel, Zedekiah, Here's what happens to him in Babylon. You can read about this in Jeremiah 52. He has his sons murdered in front of his eyes. And then the king of Babylon has his own eyes put out on the spot so that the last thing he sees is the death of his line. You will not see anything again. And the last memory you have of sight is the death of your whole family because you disobeyed me. Grim, grim stuff. What message comes out of a situation like this? What kind of prophecy comes out of this. Well, from the rubble, we get the book of Lamentations. And I said we're studying Jeremiah, but Jeremiah is also the author of a book of poems called the book of Lamentations, followed right after it in your Bibles. And there are five chapters, and with it, there are five poems of grief. Let me read you just a couple verses from these right now. Lamentations 1.18, Jeremiah writes, for these things I weep, my eyes run down with water, because far from me is a comforter, one who restores my soul. My children are desolate because the enemy has prevailed. His heart is broken for what's happened. Uh, Lamentations 2, 14. Your prophets have seen for you false and foolish visions, and they have not exposed your iniquity so as to restore you from captivity, but they have seen for you false and misleading oracles. The grief at the people who are supposed to be on God's side who deceive God's people. He's grieved and angry about this. And so that we don't turn away from some of the horrors, Lamentations chapter 4, uh, 9 and 10. Better are those slain with the sword than those slain with hunger, for they pine away being stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women boiled their own children. They became food for them because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. This is eyewitness trauma. This is not dramatic posturing. If you're in a siege, you're starving, what happens to people in those moments? Morals go out the window. Your ideas of what's valuable changes. And sometimes we think we're removed from this stuff because we trust in the thin veneer of civilization that prevents us from these things. A few tweaks to geopolitics, and we're not much worse off than some of these situations. Okay. The five poems of Lamentations are all highly structured. Four of the five are acrostics. Interesting fact. So an acrostic is where the first letters spell something right. Well, all the letters, of the, there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And the poems of Lamentations are all built on these letters. So they're all 22 verses, right? And each one follows, follows this pattern. Except for the fifth. The fifth has 22 verses but doesn't follow it. Don't worry. None of you are reading, Ebenezer's the only one reading in Hebrew. None of the others are reading in Hebrew, so you don't have to worry about this at the moment. 
thing? I'll lift that gimbal bait. Okay. So um, the, the third poem is a little different, though. So uh, you're thinking, this is a highly structured document. And so you have uh, five highly structured poems. And the middle poem is also highly structured, but it's a little different. Uh, the middle poem is three times as long. So uh, it keeps the acrostic, but it's three verses in a row with the same letter. And then three verses in a row with the same letter. There's a shift in these moments from uh, the national tragedy to personal despair. Jeremiah begins to say things, chapter 3, verse 1, I am the man who has seen affliction. He shifts from the global events to himself, and as is often the case in the Old Testament and in the Bible in general, the individual and the community pulse back and forth. Jeremiah is grieving for his people, but he also is his people. He says, I am Israel suffering in this way. And there's a, there's a recognition that something, and a hope maybe, that Jeremiah's faithfulness may be communicated to his people. Maybe if I'm faithful, it will do something for the people around me. And in this context of utter despair, from the rubble of all that is known and loved, and all that Jeremiah labored to save through calling people back to God's work and the failure of it, witnessing firsthand the destruction of all these things, he speaks the words of Lamentations 3, 19 and 25. Let me read these for you now. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness is indeed never ceased, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. You maybe have never thought about the context of these words before in quite this way. The destruction of all you know. The loss of all you love. The failure of your great mission in life. Witness to horrors beyond your imagining. The deportation of your friends and family. The end of your nation as you know it. Everything is done. And in the midst of that, what does Jeremiah say? Great is your faithfulness, God. Maybe you've sung that song, Great is Thy Faithfulness, before. It's a lovely song. I kind of think it ought to be in a minor key. A little bit less triumphant. A little bit more sorrowful. The great faithfulness of God fits in these things. And just to point out again, the structure of the book. Five, I, won't, I have to do this weirdly. Five, there's five things. The middle one, the center of the middle one, is the hope of God in the midst of all this great despair. It's really quite elegantly put together. And I want to point out, I think, that this is actually the main message of the prophet Jeremiah for us. The central message of Lamentations is also the message of the book we're going to look at over the next months. It's a message that we need to hear every bit as much today as Israel needed to hear it in the wake of their national despair. Here, in the midst of the middle section of the middle poem, in the midst of the greatest despair, Jeremiah calls us to remember the great faithfulness of God. God is faithful, and he is when everything has failed, Jeremiah trusts in God. When every human has failed him, Jeremiah trusts in God. When his fellow religious leaders have failed to do their job, Jeremiah trusts in God. In the midst of his extreme grief, he trusts in God. He still is angry and shouts his grief out. He doesn't stuff it. He lets it out. In the midst of existential trauma, Jeremiah trusts in God. And in the darkest night, Jeremiah calls us to remember God's covenant faithfulness. Now, on the surface, our situation 
is not nearly as grim as Jeremiah's, is it? And yet there are similarities, and I think his message still applies. There are no geopolitical empires threatening to undo our whole way of life if we don't comply, right? Thankfully, the Americans have not decided to take over Canada yet, okay? Yeah, let, let, let them try, and then I get deported. Yeah, it's okay. It's, uh, I, don't, I don't want that either. Uh, there's no uniform religious political ideology, right? There's no temple in Ottawa that unifies everybody in Canada and says this is our uniform belief in place. There aren't those same symbols that hold us together in that way. Um, and yet, we do live in a world of horrors. We do live in a world of real horrors. And like I said a minute ago, we allow our belief in civilization to veil us from some of those horrors. And every once in a while, we encounter them. We encounter them, we can't avoid them because they're brought to us by our media. But those snippets of media are testimonies to something much bigger and much more awful. And not only are there like instances of horror, but the problem of the human heart hasn't changed. It's just as wicked now as it was in the seventh century before Christ. There's just as much twisting and going wrong. We may think we're all, uh, we've solved the problem, but we haven't. And so we're not quite as far removed from Jeremiah as we think we are. But maybe there are other similarities, because instead of a geopolitical empire, there is a kind of cultural, spiritual empire. There's a kind of effort to change things. There's an empire that wants you to worship freedom at all costs. To be free and to choose what you want and to be yourself no matter what the case is. I want you to express it in your sexual freedom. Express it in your financial freedom. Express it at whatever cost to other people in the world who you don't have to see and notice and do things with. There's an empire that wants to form your heart and minds as contented consumers. Right? If you buy enough, you'll be happy. Okay? Only a little bit more. Slightly bigger house. Slightly longer vacation. Just another zero at the end of my bank account, right? It's a lot of things it tells us to want. There's an empire in which, even today, false teachers stand and speak for God, but they're lying. And they're deceiving God's people in the midst of us. And an empire in which the Christian story has largely become sometimes a thing to be tolerated, and at other times a thing that should be actively removed. The story is harmful. It's trauma-inducing. It destroys lives. We don't stand in the chaos and destruction of our way in life, but we do stand in the destroyed aftermath of our worldview. We don't share any longer. And it's an array of increasingly triumphant conquerors kind of stand around us celebrating the diminishment of the Christian story in the world. Now, I'm not saying it's as grim as Jeremiah, but I think there's some similarities. I'm reminded of this of Psalm uh, 11, verses 1 through 3. Uh, the psalmist writes, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If we remove all their foundations, what can they do? Kind of a mockery, a sense of, ha ha, we got you. Well, we do what Jeremiah tells us to do. We testify to the great faithfulness of God. We remember that it actually was never about us. It was always about him. It was never about our privilege and our power and our position. It was about exalting him. 
Uh, if you know about soldiers, there's a group of soldiers in a, any military contest called sappers. A sapper undermines things, right? Uh, they dig under walls and they undermine foundations so that the foundations will fall. And today we've, had, we've lost the foundations for, we've relied on in Christianity for about a thousand years. They're gone. The foundations we rested on as Christians are no longer in place. And if those foundations are destroyed, what can we do? Well, our world may look grim, but God is faithful. Our so-called culture war may be lost, but God is faithful. Okay? Our position and privilege and power as Christians may be evaporated, but guess what? God is faithful. And we must continue to focus on the faithfulness of God. And we need some of Jeremiah's other messages as well. I'm going to run through these fairly quickly because we're going to come back to these in the following weeks. Jeremiah 17, 9, we need to be reminded of the human condition. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The human condition hasn't changed. It's the same today as it was in his day. The heart is deceitful. And all of us in that deceit have turned away from God. Jeremiah 2, 13, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, water pits, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God is the source of our solution, and yet we don't turn to him. We turn to earthly and weak things in response to it. Because of this, God's judgment is clear. Jeremiah 51, 56, for the destroyer is coming against her, against Babylon, and her mighty men will be captured. Their bows are shattered, for the Lord is a God of recompense. He will fully repay. Judgment is clear and coming and real. There's no escape. But he calls us to repent. Jeremiah 6.16, thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. If you turn to me, I will give you rest, he says. And in his faithfulness, Jeremiah 31.33, God will put a new covenant in our hearts. This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declare the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. What wonderful news that God makes a way. But then there's responsibility in our part, Jeremiah 15, 19, and 20, and this is our responsibility and also my responsibility as your, as your leader. Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, then I will restore you. Before me you will stand, and if you extract the precious from the worthless, you will become my spokesman. They, for their part, may turn to you, but as for you, you must not turn to them. Then I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze, and though they fight against you, they will not prevail over you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. Jeremiah is set apart because he must listen to God and God alone. We, by proxy, are set apart because we must also listen to God and God alone. And we must turn to him no matter what. Uh, at our screw tape class on Friday night, um, one of the students asked the question, if Lewis was writing today, would he say different things? And at the end of the class, the same person came up to me and said, <laughs> it's great, he said, I've got my own answer. He'd say the same things, but use different examples. And I think the same is true of the book of Jeremiah. It's the same message, different time frame. That's a snapshot of the journey we're going to be together on for the next weeks and months. And I'm excited about what we could do. Uh, but as we close today, I want to highlight maybe um, Jeremiah's message for you personally. And I'm going to invite actually our musicians to come and take their place with us um, as they get ready. And I want to ask a question. Are you perhaps in a season of despair? 
Um, has there been a dark time in your life? Do you maybe feel like there's no hope for you at this moment? Um, have you perhaps lost a job? Have you lost a loved one? Um, are you in a decaying marriage? Are you at odds with family or friends or anyone in your life? Have you found yourself trapped in a place of sin or despair, whether bound up by alcohol or pornography or issues with money or a sense of fractured identity you just can't get out of? You don't know who you are. Life, well, whatever the case may be, I want you to hear today that God is faithful. No matter where you are, no matter what's going on, he remains faithful. And you may turn to him, and he will extend that faithfulness to you. Now, I want to invite you, especially this morning, if that's you, to receive some prayer. Uh, we have two sets of prayer ministers in the balcony. We have Gary and Isabel. I don't know where. They've got name tags on, and they're going to be up here by the alcove. And uh, downstairs, we'll have Clive and Debbie Harvey, and they'll be back over here. If you're wondering why they're at the back, it's because it's easier to hear people. If they stand by the speaker, it's deafening. Uh, but we've got time now to worship, to exalt Jesus, to seek his faithfulness, and for you to receive prayer and receive a touch of the faithfulness of God.